welcome to The Dirt. I am your host, Brian Powell. On this show, we discuss environmental justice, environmental news, environmental policy in the state of North Carolina. There's a lot going on in this space right now. So I'm going to jump into it really quickly just to give you a look at what today's show is going to hit on. Let me tell you, we've got first an interview with Lewis Dozier. Uh, He's a farmer just off the coast down in Brunswick County. I caught up with him at the recent Environmental Justice Summit hosted by the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network. And we talked about threats to water quality from overdevelopment and from climate change. We talked about his experience leading his community's opposition to a proposed landfill and a little bit about his experience as a black farmer in the South and Uh, being able to get access to the same federal funds and subsidies that other farmers have uh, been able to enjoy for uh, a long, long time and what impact that has had on his well-being. Uh, If anyone out there has heard of the Pigford settlement, uh, it related to a farmer from North Carolina, Louis Dozier knew him, uh, who was uh, discriminated against with the uh, regard to the distribution of federal funds for his agricultural practices. So we'll get into that a little bit. Also, North Carolina environmental justice issues have garnered some national attention recently. The United States House of Representatives House Energy and Commerce Committee held a hearing on environmental justice issues around the country. And it featured North Carolina's own Elsie Herring, who uh, has been on the show before. She is a community member from Duplin County who has been impacted by uh, hog farms and industrial hog production uh, in her community on land that has belonged to her family for a long, long time. And uh, because of the dirty practices of the industrial pork industry, Uh, She has not been able to enjoy her land. She told a really compelling story uh, at that committee hearing, and we grabbed the audio from that. We're going to let you listen to it because it's really important that people hear about this issue, and and it's fantastic that it's been getting national attention. And we will also be talking to you today about some industrial compounds and chemicals showing up in waterways and in drinking water. From Greensboro all the way down to Wilmington, North Carolina, Policy Watch journalist Lisa Sorg is here to talk about some different kinds of legal and regulatory actions that are being taken against some municipalities in North Carolina related to these discharges. And we'll talk about the issue of 1-4 dioxane just a little bit more broadly as well and what people should know and, and, and do about uh possible contamination of their waterways and drinking water and and all that stuff. So let's get straight into that right now. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Glad to have you back. So which of the things do I want to talk about first? There's a lot happening right now. I guess let's start with, well, let's start with 1,4-Dioxane. What is 1,4-Dioxane, first and foremost? Well, first of all, 1,4-Dioxane is not natural. It's not found in the environment. It's a man-made chemical. It is often uh, used to make plastics or in recycling of plastics. It's a solvent stabilizer, technically. So, for example, when we drink out of plastic bottles and we recycle them and we think, oh, we're just such great people, well, somebody has to recycle that, and then that 1,4-Doxane is often discharged into the waterways. So it is a likely... Uh, human carcinogen, meaning it has been linked to cancer. So it's not something you want to be exposed to. And we talk about Gen X and uh, PFAS a lot on the show. This is the contaminant that was uh, discharged by Kimors, a former, formerly DuPont subsidiary, and contaminated some water and continues to in uh, some levels. The water of, of folks down in Wilmington, we talked about that a lot. This is, I think, considered by um, by some of the water experts in the state uh, to be more dangerous. Yes. Detlef Kanapi of NC State has consistently sounded the alarm that while PFOS is bad, we don't want to diminish that, 1,4-dioxane is worse. It's also, um, I think, the difference between the media attention of 1,4-dioxane and PFOS is that, you know, PFOS and Gen X had this 
one boogeyman, right. Kim Moore's. Well, uh, it's a little bit different with 1,4-dioxane because there are a lot of dischargers, and it's being used as uh, in sludge. It's in sludge that's then put on fields, so it can run off into the drinking water. So there's less... The person responsible is more diffused. Right, right. And we, I mean, that's important because it actually, you know, I wasn't going to bring this up, but it's important. There's a, a movie coming out this month uh, that'll be coming to North Carolina probably in December. And I know we're going to try to host some screenings maybe uh, into next year called Dark Waters starring Mark Ruffalo. And it is, a, it is about the boogeyman that is DuPont. And it primarily centers on their production uh, of C8, which was the precursor to Gen X and putting it into the waterways near Parkersburg, West Virginia and parts of Ohio. And it, it's this it's easy or easier to put into a movie uh, because you've got DuPont. Everybody knows who DuPont is. It's this, you know, chemical manufacturer. They've had a terrible record on the environment for in public health for a long, long time. And in that particular case, there was some resolution. They have phased C8 out. Now we know that they've the stuff that they're substituting it with is just as bad. But to your point, there was this one boogeyman and, you know, you could go after him and this is way different. It strikes me also that, and I think I talked about this once before, this stuff's, I think this is as hard to filter. Is this? Yes. It's, yeah. it's very, very difficult to remove through traditional water treatment. So once it gets to, say, Pittsburgh's intake, which is there in Bynum, there's a beautiful bridge in Bynum where people <laughs> put the pumpkins at Halloween, and you can look down, and that's where they get their water. And all that water coming down from Greensboro and Ashboro and Reedsville that contains the 1,4-dioxane, Pittsburgh can't get it all out. They've done some upgrades to reduce it, but it's not eliminated. And the cost to do that is passed on to the ratepayer. So people naturally get afraid and think, well, maybe I'll just drink bottled water, which drives up demand for the very product whose production contributes to the problem of 1,4-dioxane in the first place. That is correct. And by not using the town's water, which I don't blame them, the town doesn't get the revenue because people aren't using the water. So this is a really, dare I say, intractable problem at this point. so tell me what's happening with the Southern Environmental Law Center and the city of Burlington first. Or if you want to talk about DEQ and Greensboro and Reedsville first, we can do that too. But there's a couple of different things going on here that both uh, track hopefully in a positive direction on this. Right. Well, first of all, the Southern Environmental Law Center last week, I believe, yes, or maybe two weeks ago, sent a notice of intent to sue to the city of Burlington. And this is because the East Burlington Wastewater Treatment Plant and the South Wastewater Treatment Plant are discharging 1,4-dioxane into the Haw or tributaries of the Haw. One of the things that I thought was a really interesting point about this is we hear a lot about 1,4-dioxane not being regulated. And, And that's partially true. It is not regulated under the Safe Drinking Water Act. So that means the EPA has not sent a maximum contaminant level. They haven't set anything like that that's enforceable for drinking water. However, it is regulated under the Clean Water Act because it's a pollutant. And that is what SCLC and their genius of lawyers over there <laughs> have have told Burlington they're going to sue them on that basis. The other thing is that sludge from Burlington's wastewater treatment plants is then applied on fields And that would be a violation of another statute called RICRA, and I won't Mm -hmm. bore you with the law, but basically you can't just dump stuff that's hazardous. Right. And by putting it on the fields, it has no agricultural benefit. It basically qualifies as open dumping. So the city of Burlington has until early January to respond to this, or DEQ can come in and enforce do some kind of enforcement or violation, and then SELC could say, okay, we're not going to sue. But, you know... I was going to ask you, if it's the law, then why are they doing it? Usually when you break the law, you're supposed to have consequences, right? Oh, Brian, you're so funny. (laughs) Um, You are supposed to have consequences. And 
I think there's a question why East Burlington has not hasn't had the hammer down on them by DEQ. Now, last uh, week, there was a meeting in Greensboro, and DEQ did mention the East Burlington situation, that they're looking at them. In my opinion, I think regulators, state and federal, don't think that these plants can actually meet a standard, and so they're just trying to get them to reduce or rein in the discharge or tell their industrial customers you got to stop or find a replacement and they're a little hesitant to enforce because they don't think anyone can meet the standard the problem's too big yeah and i you know there are a lot of water systems and utilities in in deep fiscal crisis across the state of north carolina it's something that no one's talking about and it's i mean it's at some critical stages uh, especially in the smaller systems around the state so i guess that brings me to maybe an explanation why so why is it that you know we know that the it's the waste treatment um, centers and, and utilities who are kind of unable to treat this and so then they're discharging it essentially and they're collecting wastewater from these industrial customers that you mentioned how come the industrial customers that are that are originally producing this stuff in the first place uh, not the target of regulatory action, public attention, uh, any of that kind of thing. Okay, well, that's a really great question. So there are two type of industrial dischargers. One type that discharge directly into the waterways, those folks are under DEQ, like DAC Americas in Fayetteville. They discharge right into the Cape Fear, so DEQ regulates them. If you are Shamrock Environmental in Brown Summit, which is in Guilford County, or Unify in, uh, that discharges into uh, the Reedsville system, you, are, you have a step between you and the river, and that is the municipal treatment plant. So the municipality, it's up to them to enforce against those industrial dischargers, and then the state enforces on the municipality. So there's one step removed. There's that kind of uh, buffer um, so it's it's cities like Greensboro and Reedsville and Burlington that have to rein these folks in. And why aren't they? Well, I think there are several arguments for that. One, those same dischargers probably account for jobs, so you don't want to necessarily close them down uh, if you are a municipality. And I think that because... This is such a big problem that some of these industrial dischargers just sometimes it's an accident. And Shamrock Environmental said it was an accident. But uh, I think that the municipalities are looking more closely at their at these now that they know what's coming out of these industrial dischargers. And I think the other thing that's uh, shocking is that you don't there's a huge time lag between knowing when there's a spike in the in the in the industrial discharge and when they have to tell DEQ. Well, yeah. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that because, you know, it's one thing to not take an enforcement action against a known um, discharger. It's another thing to not know what is being discharged or when it's being discharged and, and not even be able to let the public know what's in the water that either they're drinking or, or you know, playing or swimming in. So, I mean, were the, were the tests that led to this lawsuit or that led to, uh, I referenced it before, but we didn't say it uh, explicitly, the Department of Environmental Quality has issued uh, notices of violation to the town of Reedsville and the city of Greensboro uh, for the same kind of thing. But are these tests being done regularly enough to know what's in this water? Or was this just kind of like... It happened. There was a coincidence that somebody was testing this. It wasn't a regular thing that they do. And then, you know, suddenly they're taking action because they have this information. Well, DEQ has been stepping up the 1,4-dioxane monitoring for a couple years because it, uh, after uh, Detlef Canapi found it in the Cape Fear River Basin. But the sampling up until recently was monthly. And so the problem is, let's say there's a spike on August 8th. And my report isn't due until September 1st. And then it takes maybe another couple weeks to get it all analyzed and whatnot. By that time, it 
the water is downstream and it's somebody else's problem. So I know that at this meeting last week, DEQ said that one of the parameters of the notice of violation is going to be a stricter notification system, and they are doing weekly sampling now at uh, Greensboro and Reedsville. So there are, I think part of the enforcement is going to be just a, a tighter leash on these folks. Do you have any sense of how long this kind of contamination has been going on in the water systems in, in the Haw River Basin? I would say, I don't know exactly, but years, years and years. Because as, as long as 1,4-dioxane has been coming out of those industri- industries, it's been in the water. So something that the communities down in, in Wilmington and Fayetteville have been asking loudly for is more robust uh, health, public health testing, um, epidemiological studies, and, and other things that can help them get a better understanding of what the actual impacts may be from some of the contaminants that, in their case, they'd been exposed to for 30-plus uh, years so they've already exceeded the lifetime exposure of these things. Is is there any indication that there are health impacts uh, happening in the Hall River Basin yet, either from studies or, or anecdotes that you've heard or anything like that? Well, the the advantage, if you can call it that, of 1,4-dioxane is there has already been a lot of toxicology done on that. So we know that it has cancer-causing properties. There has not, to my knowledge, been any kind of uh, formal epidemiology of people who've consumed the water in Pittsburgh. I would expect that there are probably some universities thinking about that or doing something about that. But the other thing is, and we've seen this with the Gen X and the PFOS problem, is that your exposure can come from so many things. Like 1,4-Dioxane is in personal care products. The Environmental Working Group, which is EWG.org, I believe, has a list of the pers- of lotions and cosmetics that contain this. So let's say you put on your lotion and then you get in the shower and all that runs into the waterways. But you've exposed yourself to 1,4-dioxane. So teasing out what came from the water, what came from the lipstick or the, the lotion or the plastic bottle, it's really difficult. Well, that's a lot, and there's a lot more to this story that we don't have time to get into today, but I really appreciate you uh, talking to us about it today. Um, we're running out of time. we got to go on to the next segment. You have been listening to North Carolina Policy Watch journalist Lisa Sorg. This is The Dirt on WNCU 90.7 FM. Look us up on Twitter, at The Dirt FM, and stay tuned for more great content coming up next. Back to the dirt on WNCU-FM. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the United States House Committee on Energy and Commerce, chaired by Democratic Representative Frank Pallone Jr. from New Jersey, has been doing some really positive things related to the environment and environmental justice in recent weeks. On November 20th, the committee passed and favorably reported to the full House H.R. 535, the PFAS Action Act, it would require that within one year of enactment of this bill, if it were to pass, that the EPA administrator should designate all perfluorinated uh, substances as hazardous substances under the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, known commonly as CERCLA, which would be a a huge, huge step in the ability of uh, EPA and uh, uh, other regulators to clean this stuff up and and to force polluters to clean it up. So that was fantastic. It was a bill that was introduced by Representative Debbie Dingell, a Democrat, and Representative Fred Upton, a Republican, both hailing from the state of Michigan. Michigan's been dealing with many of the same issues as North Carolina with regards to PFAS contamination, contamination, uh, particularly related to manufacturer 3M, Uh, up there in the state of Michigan. So fantastic work there. And then uh, around the same time, they held the hearing that I mentioned earlier on environmental justice. I want to read a quote here from uh, the chairman, Frank Pallone Jr., 
Quote, across America, pollution has long disproportionately impacted low-income communities and communities of color. The climate crisis is only deepening this inequality and increasing risks for frontline communities. As we work to combat this growing crisis, we must prioritize environmental justice. We look forward to hearing from impacted communities to not only talk about the global climate crisis, but also how America's cities and towns have been experiencing cumulative impacts from toxics such as coal ash, ethylene oxide, factory farm runoff, and much more. And so they've been doing a series of hearings in this committee, bringing attention to a lot of the different frontline communities battling environmental racism across the country. And in this most recent iteration, Elsie Herring, a community member who uh, lives near uh, down in Duplin County, adjacent to some factory hog growers, uh, was able to go up from uh, North Carolina to D.C. to provide testimony. She was joined there by Mustafa Ali, a former EPA environmental justice uh, leader, and some others uh, who testified to their experiences. It was uh, fantastic to hear her story. And I want to share a little bit of the audio from that uh, committee hearing with you now. Have a listen. Next, we recognize Ms. Elise Herring, please, for five minutes. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I thank you for allowing me to be here today to testify. Um, my name is Elsie Herring. <laughs> it's quite all right. I get called Elise often. Ma'am, can you just pull the mic a little bit closer? I, I, we got a colleague who's very old to the right who has a hard time. <laughs> uh, we'll strike that from the record. Um, and and uh, my apologies, Elsie. So, right, Ms. Right. Herring, we'll start you again for five minutes, please. Okay. I'm here today to discuss the conditions that we live with when they spray animal waste on us, the pollution from the hog and poultry industries that contaminates our water and our air. The dangers from living on the front line of climate change and racism and the structure power that keeps us from being at the table when decisions are being made about our communities, our health, our homes, and our future. I live in Duplin County in North Carolina. I live on land that's been in my family for over 100 years. The hog operation moved in next door in 1986. And in the mid-90s, they started spraying animal waste on us approximately 8 to 12 feet from my mom's house. When the spray becomes airborne, it blows over on us just like it's raining. The odor is horrific. We have to deal with all the insects, gnats, mosquitoes, flies, buzzards, rats, snakes, all outgrowths from this industry. When we go outside, we can't stay outside for very long because the odor is so offensive that we start gagging, we start coughing, our heart rate increase, we become depressed, we have a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. The industry does nothing to address our concerns. There's also gases that's being released into our air, methane gas, ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, along with other gases. Many of these gases are deadly, but this is what we have to deal with in these impacted communities. My mother lived on this land for 99 years. And because they were spraying animal waste on us, I complained to the proper agencies from the local level up to the federal level because this was an injustice being done to us and we were here on this land first. And because I complained, I received a letter from a lawyer that represented the industry and the county of Duplin telling me that if I continued my groundless complaints that I could be made to serve time in jail 
or I could be paid, made to pay the hog farmer back money that he was losing because of my groundless complaints. It was a Saturday, we were sitting on the porch like we used to do all the time before this industry came in next door. The hog farmer's son came into my mother's house. He opened a storm door and a screen door and he came in and he grabbed onto my mother's chair. She was 98 years old at this time. And he shook her around. He cursed at her and he told her he could do anything to me that he wanted to and get away with it. The hog farmer came over with the stick threatening to hit me. His son came over twice with a gun. They called me that B word more than one time. And my mother's house is 400 feet from the road, main road. He would yell up in there and call me that name. That's how they treated me and my family. They are still intimidating us till today and harassing us. Just about two weeks ago, this black car passed by in front of my house, stopped, a gentleman got out and started taking photos of me. All because I've taken a stand because of this injustice that we're dealing with, living on land that's my birthright. My mother died in 2001. She was born in 1902. She lived in the house that my father and my uncle built. She left out of her father's house into her house where she reared the 15 of us. My mother didn't deserve to be treated the way she was treated. And I don't think I do either, nor any of the other impacted community people. So I'm here today to ask you if you would take the lead in addressing this situation by coming up with a comprehensive way of disposing this animal waste because these pigs do not have to be raised the way they are being raised. It's easy to dig a hole in the ground and to spray that waste into the environment when it is just destroying the very fabric of our lives. We can coexist. The industry in year 2000 entered into an agreement with the state that the, the uh, spray filling lagoon system was antiquated. A panel was established to identify systems that would address that issue. Five systems were identified. The industry said they're too costly. One of the primary people that worked on this, these systems said that it's not costly. So it just appears to me that the industry just wants to continue to do business as usual. So if we could, if you could find it in your heart to place a national moratorium on these CAFOs, it would make life so much better for people living in southeastern North Carolina in the floodplain area. Thank you, Ms. Herring. The uh, chair now recognizes the gentlelady from California, Representative Matsui, for five minutes, please. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and I want to thank the witnesses for being here today, especially elevating voices from communities across the country that often get overlooked. Thank you for being here. As we consider the impacts of climate change and the solutions to prevent further warming of our planet, it is absolutely critical that we ensure we're not leaving any communities behind. Whether it's from poorly designed transportation corridors, the influence of large industrial or agricultural corporations, or the negligence of companies storing coal ash waste, we see the same issue facing frontline community, communities across the country, and this absolutely must stop. While there are tools within the federal government to address environmental justice issues such as NEPA or Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we are certainly and should be doing more to ensure that no one is left behind. Ms. Herring, thank you for being here today and sharing your story. I'm horrified by what you and your family and your neighbors have been through, but inspired by the fight you brought to polluters and the message you are sharing today, especially the recent victory achieved through Title VI. While we all know this is an important victory, obvious issues with the law persist. Before it even became an issue, what could have prevented the devastation your community saw from increased hog farm operations near your home? And have you seen other local governments engage with communities in a way that might have prevented these operations from occurring? When the hog operations first came into our communities, we were not aware of them. When I approached the industry about this, 
they said that the hog growers talked to their neighbors. They never talked to the mm. neighbors. When these facilities were first built, they were hidden. We didn't even know where the stink was coming from. But it was coming from these facilities. So when you don't know where the pollution is coming from, you don't know really who to, to approach about the issue. Right. But because of the de deforestation and the continual cutting down of trees, all these facilities, the landscape in southeastern North Carolina, as far as you can drive, all you see are CAFOs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these CAFOs are having a negative impact on our lives. Sure. And it's devalued our property, has um, impacted our health, and we don't even, we're not even able to enjoy our property rights, which is to simply walk outside if you so desire, sit outside on your porch, mm -hmm. cut your flowers, whatever. Right. There's just no activity outside at all. We're just basically held prisoners in our own homes, and we had no idea what was going on. Certainly. So... Although EPA expressed agreement that minority populations are being disproportionately impacted, do you feel that there were limitations in how EPA was interpreting Title VI to prevent as much progress as could have been made in protecting your home and your community? When we approached the EPA and invite them to come down, this was all based on the Title VI mm -hmm. and the 1964 Civil Rights right. Act guarantees that corporations cannot take federal funds and discriminate, but that's what they're doing. There's over 2 million pigs in Duplin County with a population of 60 people. Okay. And the EPA did not and does not pressure DEQ when they were renewing these swine, state swine permits to include safeguards for the community people. We were totally left out of the decision. Okay. So, so the United States Commission on Civil Rights report on environmental justice issued in 2016 found a lack of enforcement and significant delays in EPA's handling of complaints under Title VI. Mr. Ali, you've worked at EPA. What effect would delays on Title VI complaints have on communities? It puts their lives in greater danger. Mm -hmm. So they are continually, that's the interesting thing. People always want to move so slowly in a process, and they forget that everyday folks are the ones that are having to breathe in and drink these various toxins that, that are impacting their health and their life. And, and you just can't continue to do that. So you feel that these civil rights complaints are not being taken as seriously as they should be? When I was there, I thought that there could be more attention to it. In the previous panel, they said that they've cleaned everything up, so we'll have to see. How could, what could they do to better move forward here? There should be stronger community engagement. There should be trans more transparency in the process. Um, we should make sure that the expertise that needs to exist inside of the Title VI programs are there. Um, that means that you've got to hire the right folks, and you also got to actually spend real time out in people's communities to see what they're dealing with. I understand the law. But there's also another component that there are real impacts that are happening to real people, and we need to be utilizing the law in a better fashion. Okay. Well, thank you, and I yield back. Okay. You have been listening to Elsie Herring speak about the, her experiences living adjacent to factory hog producers in rural eastern North Carolina. That was at a committee hearing of the House Energy and Commerce uh, hearing in the United States Congress up in Washington, D.C., we are out of time for this segment. We're going to be back next segment with an interview with Lewis Dozier, a farmer down in Brunswick County who has been fighting off landfills and fighting off climate change and fighting off development to keep his community alive and thriving. And he has a great story to share as well. You have been listening to The Dirt on WNCU 90.7 FM. I am your host, Brian Powell, and we will be right back. Back to the dirt. We're heading into our final segment today. I was able to catch up with Louis Dozier. He is the president of the Royal Oaks Concerned Citizens Association down in Brunswick County, North Carolina. He is also a longtime farmer. And we spoke with him at the Environmental Justice Summit 
in Whitakers, North Carolina, not too long ago, hosted by the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network. Mr. Dozier talked to us about his organizing of his community to fight off a, a landfill successfully. He talked to us a little bit about the impacts climate change are having on the coast and just inland where people are attempting to farm and what overdevelopment uh, has done in his community outside of Wilmington, which is largely a community of color, historically black community. A lot of new people are moving in. They're straining the water resources in that community. And there are a lot of challenges uh, that are opposing them there. So we talked to him about that. And we also talked to him about uh, the federal discrimination when it comes to the disbursement of agricultural grants and funds for small farmers. It was a fantastic conversation. Here it is. What are you afraid might be in the water? Right, right. So you have salt water infiltrating the freshwater well. Was this the Cape Fear Public Utility Authority? Is that the utility? Okay. Okay. Our major concern now is our water supply. 
So the major effort right now would be getting those tests and getting that information. Do you have any idea how to go about doing that? I know uh, in, I want to say, Guilford County, Iredell, maybe, central part of the state, the county health department will sometimes come out and test if they if there's a pretty clear, in their mind, reason to do something. Have you talked to the Brunswick County health officials? Like, are they refusing to come out? Um, Can I ask just as a, um, how you went about doing the survey, just out of curiosity? Through the mail? Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. I know that you have talked in the past about uh, doing some farming, and um, I'm wondering if 
if there are many folks in your community who are doing subsistence farming and uh, whether in general um, your farming activities or any of that has been impacted by the storms, particularly Florence and what that recovery has been like uh, or what the impact was. What's that looking like for you all down there? You might not know the answer to this. It's kind of uh, out there. But have you or has anyone in your community or has the community as a whole benefited at all from any of the Pigford settlements? They go back to the 90s and uh, relate to um, the federal government basically discriminating against black farmers when it came to lending uh, and grants and subsidies and things like that. If you recall, um, do you do you remember how you were notified of this in the first place, or you were a plaintiff in the original? And how much was it? similar vein um what about fema money uh 
recovery, storm recovery money? Has your community seen much in the way of that? Well, I think we have to wrap it up, but I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with us today. Okay, you have been listening to Lewis Dozier, the president of the Royal Oaks Concerned Citizens Association down in Brunswick County. I'm your host, Brian Powell. This is The Dirt on WNCU 90.7 FM. Thank you for joining us this week, and we hope you stay tuned. Next month, we'll be covering a lot of environmental justice news and policy issues uh, going into next year. So thank you for sticking with us, and a big thanks to the production staff at WNCU 90.7 FM. Look for us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts as well, and look for us on Twitter at The Dirt FM. Until next time, be good, y'all.